All right, so I'll start here. In the world of home improvement and home repairs, nothing could be more mundane than a leaky kitchen faucet, right? Nothing could be more basic, more handyman 101. Just a kitchen faucet that leaks. Plop. Plop. Okay. You don't want me to keep doing it. I can see it already. Don't do it a third time. Nothing could be more mundane. But also, could anything drive you more mad? I hate that sound. And I remember a season when we just delayed fixing it in the house I grew up in, and I couldn't be anywhere near the kitchen, near the east side of the house, when that faucet was dropping a drop every couple of seconds, a little unpredictably. It, it drove me crazy. And some of you are already thinking of, yeah, there's actually a type of torture that involves slow drips of water. And so uh, this has been going on for a long time. We don't want to hear the slow drip. It's too, it's too much. It's mundane, but it drives us crazy. And this psalm, Psalm 73, is about a slow drip. More specifically, as you just heard it read, it's about a crisis of faith, about doubting God. But the crisis of faith, the doubts are, are not caused by a singular catastrophe, a diagnosis, an accident, a death. No, no, he, he's not doubting his faith because of one major thing that went wrong. Neither is he doubting his faith because of a grave sin, a big error, a giant misstep that causes him to drift from his, from his faith. No, no, it's not one big thing. It's, it's a slow drip. It's many little things. And it's a simple observation. It's a simple observation that living in the world as a Christian is very hard. And sometimes we see men and women who don't know God, who don't care about God, and they don't have a care in the world. And we feel burdened by our faith. Let's set it up again. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant. And when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, he knows God is good. It's the first thing he says. I got that. And yet, why am I not doing good? We know exactly what he's talking about. Being a Christian is hard. As I've already said, there's a dissonance in our life. When we're living in the moment and have to trust beyond the moment, have to believe beyond the moment, beyond our circumstances and our understanding that a good God is overseeing our lives. And you glance around and you see that people who don't even care about God they don't seem to mind anything. I mean, they actually are the ones that look free. And that's that slow drip, sometimes unpredictably, but in the background, your life gets quiet enough and you hear it. The godless are prospering, so why are you bothering? To put it in a, in a rhyme for you. The godless seem to be doing great, so why are you committed to this faith that just doesn't seem to be breaking right for you? The godless are prospering, so why are you bothering? And there may be some in the room this morning that maybe you didn't even know this psalm was in the Bible. It's pretty raw. 
And uh, hard to imagine that this is in the songbook of God, and yet is it a testimony? We're not in a fairy tale land. And this can even cause us to slip away from our faith. If you're familiar with the poem Harlem, you probably are, by Langston Hughes. You probably came across it in high school or college, um, or the times you've read poetry on your back lawn uh, on a blanket under the tree. Uh, no, uh, listen, listen to this poem. It's very short. Uh, it stuck out with me. I still remember from when I encountered it in high school. It made an impression on me. He starts this, he starts this poem Harlem with a question. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat? Or crust over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load. Or does it explode? What happens to a dream deferred? To be a Christian is to be living in a dream deferred. Waiting for eternity to fall into the arms of God, the God who made you. And sometimes you feel like you're running out the clock and you feel dried up. You feel like something in you is, is almost festering. Like you're sagging under a heavy load. And we hear the small voice in the background, what I'm calling the, the slow drip, asking, why are you bothering with this? The psalm is about that slow drip. And like I said, I'm so thankful that it's in the Bible because it speaks so deeply to something we struggle with that we've all experienced on one scale or another with even a a level of jealousy of people who don't know God because their lives right now, right in this moment, seem good. And ours do not. And the reason ours do not is somehow in some way related to our own faith in God. The burden that we're carrying in following God. But this psalm leads us right through, right through that valley of despair. That the promise that God is good, so good, so good that he's going to make the trappings of the worldly, whatever's happening in the moment that you're jealous of, it's going to look like a plaything. Because God is the real thing and he's given us himself. And that's where the psalmist goes this morning. So for the rest of the time, we're going to look at the psalm, and uh, one of the reasons I chose it is it's so straightforward. It's almost like a story. He tells you, here's the temptation, here's what I almost slipped from, and then he unmasks the temptation. He reveals it for what it is, and then at the end, he rests in God's goodness, as you heard Becca read through that a moment ago. So we're going to look at those three things, the temptation, then the temptation exposed for what it is, and then finally, God's goodness. So God is pure in heart. We already read that. Verse 1, truly God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. And we know the first, the first three. But you go down to um, the, uh, the sec- this first section, the temptation. I'm sorry, I moved ahead of a page before I was done. What follows the first three verses that set up the psalm is a recap of what we just talked about. The temptation, the temptation unmasked, and then God's goodness. He was envious of the arrogant, and he saw the prosperity of the wicked, verse 3. And he's incredibly frank. And I love that he takes the time to draw out his thoughts here. So often we may confess something like, 
I struggle with anger or I have a problem with with lust or greed or kind of losing it with my mouth. I say too much. I put my foot in my mouth. He, He turns over in his mind all the different thoughts he's happening. He wants to probe. He wants to understand what he's going through. And what we find as we walk with him through this is that the people that he's envious of, are, are, they're categorically wicked in every way. I'll skim through it. Verse 8, they are abusive and use their power to oppress. They are abusive and use their power to oppress, but they're also impervious to shame. In verse 9, we see them boasting. They are so disconnected, they don't even care. They have no shame over their actions. And yet, incredulously, in verses 4 and 5, they are without pain. Their bodies are robust. They have nutrition. They feel good. They feel comforted. And their lives are pain-free. Oppressive, violent, shameless, boasting, abusive, with a perfect life. And it's so bad that in verse 11, God's people are saying, "Uh, does God know that this is happening like, did the, did the teacher turn her back on the, on the room here and not see the, the kid throwing the spitball? Like, what, is God not aware of this? It's highly unfair, and he caps it all off in verse 12 with this. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Okay, that's not a verse for someone's birthday card. Uh, that's, that's, <laughs> that's scary. That's scary, and this is what he's saying. And then you get down, what's his response to seeing this, to seeing this temptation, this wicked, this good life, but they're wicked. I kind of want to be a part of that. I want a piece of that because my life is so hard. In verse 14, he says, All day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. I've skipped a verse. In verse 13, he says, this is his response, All in vain I've kept my heart clean. I've washed my hands in innocence, and yet I'm stricken. And rebuked. This is the full flip because I thought from verse 1, God is good to the pure in heart. Now he's saying, I've kept my heart pure. I'm I'm washing my hands in innocence, God, and I'm stricken. And you know who's not stricken? Literally, the wicked. They are not stricken as the rest of mankind. It's a complete flip. And he thinks he's kept his heart clean in vain. In these moments of dissonance, we tend to get quiet and we can hear that voice tempting us. Are you, is this faith really for you? Is this God really for you? The truth is, a lot of times our efforts to be good are actually an effort to kind of control God. And this is subtle. Sometimes we don't even know this is happening. But as Christians, we know we're supposed to do good before the Lord. And so, We're like, I'm going to keep my laces straight so that God will keep up his end of the bargain and give me the good life, give me the things I pray for. And I myself, I myself uh, relate strongly to this, this, this thinking because um, for years I would, um, especially before I was married and and later in college, I I was keep a, a, didn't exercise a ton, didn't do a lot of things, but I was diligent in my Bible reading and prayer. That's where my focus was. And every morning, I was reading my Bible and praying. But I didn't even notice that during the day, if I had missed doing that or not done that, I would think, well, today's going to be not good because I missed that and God's mad and this isn't going to go well. That, that's not sanctification. And, and God used it in my life to grow me. But I remember the moment realizing, I'm trying to control God here. 
Everything I'm doing is an effort to control God's response to me. I'm not coming to him out of love. I'm coming to him out of a need to set my life in order. And I can blame him if it goes wrong. Some of us think that way. We think, I hold up my end of the bargain, you hold up yours, God. But that's not growing in Christ. That's not in church what we call sanctification. That's manipulation. Now, of course, we should, be, we should, we should desire to read our Bibles and pray. But what's, what's the motive? Is the motive to love and drink in of God and his presence? Or is it to control your outcome as best you can, the only way you can think of? And what happens when that's your motive of washing your hands in innocence, and yet, and yet, you are the one that's stricken, not the ones who don't know God. Would you too be tempted to look elsewhere? And last night in our neighborhood, we, we lost power. I'm sure some of you did as well. Obviously, there's a big storm, but um, we lost power for a few miles. I, I, I drove around to snoop around, and mo- a couple of stoplights for miles were out of power, and everything south of us was out of power. So it was very bizarre. It was like our neighborhood was completely dark. Um, all the things I'm used to seeing, the little lights here and there, just shut down. No lights coming out of the house. It's very spooky. But the lane, a small road, a small kind of cut out in the neighborhood road ahead of me, there was a strip of houses that all had their lights on. And as I drove around, I could see they're still watching the news. They're still feeling their AC. They're still charging their phone, you know, whatever they need to do, microwaving something. And <laughs> our predicament with AC is not good here. <laughs> uh, we, have, uh, we rely on it. And I'm, I'm, I'm at home in the dark like, okay, am I going to be up with my little kids? Like we're all sweating and crying at the same time for most of the night. And if the Lord wills, we will make it through. But but, um, but I don't want that. And so I'm a little envious of the people across the street. And I had a moment of realizing how Asaph is feeling. He says, you follow God. You think you're the one with the lights on. But what if it's the wicked, the small lane across the street with the lights on? They're the ones that don't know God. And we're all sweating it out in the dark. We're following God. The people of God, miles all down the road, in the dark. And who has the lights? I thought I was going to have the lights. Sometimes it's not that way. That is the temptation. That is what he's feeling inside. It's an inner turmoil. And I love when he says in verse 16, uh, or yeah, verse 15 and 16, he says, if I had said this, I would have betrayed your generation. A way of saying, I don't want to say this out loud because I didn't want to kind of cause doubts in other people's faith, but I'm going through all this inside. I don't even want to share it. But this is how I'm feeling towards God. In my quiet moments, I'm really doubting that he's good because well, this doesn't add up. I don't want to say it. I don't want to say it in church. I don't want to say it in community group. But uh, this is how I'm feeling. I don't know how people would respond if I said it. And despite this, he's tired, he's confused, he still goes to the sanctuary of God. That brings us from the temptation to the temptation unmasked, revealed for what it is. He faithfully goes to worship God even though he has a million questions in his heart and he doesn't really feel like he wants to share them with everyone. They're too discouraging. So here is part two. We talked about the temptation. I hope we feel a little bit with Asaph, what he's feeling this morning, and maybe you relate to it a little bit yourself. 
But this turns in verse 17 when he goes to God's sanctuary and he says, Then I discerned their end. Then I discerned their end. Now, the next three verses, what we're about to read and, and talk about is something that is extremely anathema in Phoenix, Arizona, and actually in most of our culture. Here's what I mean. Uh, you and I both know that we're living in a culture of skepticism of a truth that would apply to everyone. I mean, there's gravity, but beyond these kind of basic principles. And you may not even notice as a Christian, but it is the water that we are swimming in, that we have but phrases that we use to say, this has been my experience, right? Or this is, we, we see people say, this is my truth. And uh, this is not going to be a big diatribe on that. I say that to say, the Bible's going to put before us an extremely urgent and universal principle about what happens at the end of our days. It's not something that we can touch with lived experience or personal truth or my truth. It, it, is, it is true. It is true. And so um, maybe you've had a moment where you're, you're talking with someone who's not a believer and you, you feel like, well, are we even on the same page? Like, where are they coming from? Where am I coming from? And I'm trying to speak truthfully and biblically and respectfully of what their views are. And it's all bouncing off of them. And, and one of the reasons that is, is an, is an aversion to an applied truth to all mankind and an ability and enablement to just live out whatever you're feeling inside. And I'm trying not to make a scarecrow of this. I'm trying to be sensitive to it, but I'm saying Verses 18, 19, and 20, what we're going to look at, are about judgment from a real living God who holds every man and woman accountable. And this is not something that's very popular to talk about uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, or in our culture at all. In verses 18, 19, and 20, he discerns their end. He sees the end of the wicked. What's going to happen to the people who don't have a care about God? who have boasted in God's face, who have put God aside. They slip and fall and are destroyed. They are swept away in terror. They are despised by God. In other words, the future of people who don't know God is to have everything they ever made unmade. Their dealings of violence and oppression on earth have ended. They're utterly lost, and they can't take an ounce of the, the fatness, the sleekness, the comfort, the joy with them. It's over. It's done. And the tongue that once strutted through the earth is silenced and ignored. We have a quote from you here from C.S. Lewis. He talks about the... Um, in, in his sermon, uh, The Weight of Glory, he talks about the reality that we all face. He says, we can be banished from the presence of him who is present everywhere. We can be banished from the presence of him who is present everywhere and erased from the knowledge of him who knows all. What an interesting thought. Erased from the knowledge of him who knows all. We can be left utterly and absolutely outside. Repelled, exiled, estranged, and finally, unspeakably ignored. On the other hand, we can be called in, welcomed, received, and acknowledged. And he says this, we walk every day on a razor edge between these two incredible possibilities. 
as we'll go through this sermon more and see the conclusion, we believe in a God who holds us in his hand, who preserves us. I don't read that to scare you, but look at the language. I almost slipped. I almost stumbled. Asaph is, what Lewis says, he's, he's with it. I'm, I'm walking on the razor edge between two incredible possibilities, to be erased from the knowledge of the one who knows all, or to be welcomed and received by the one who knows all. Who knows me? Who knows my faults? What two incredible possibilities. And we need to be humbled before that. And to see this end, to see this painful truth, leads him to repentance. In verses 21 and 22, he says, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. God, I was like an animal. I wasn't even acting like a person. I was like completely lost in my envy. You can almost hear him kind of lower his voice and feel that, that weight. That's a good thing, though, because God has delivered him. He has seen the end. He has seen eternity for what it is and a good God for what he is. And he knows now that the temptation was not what it seemed. So this brings us to part three, the goodness of God goodness of God. We've looked at the temptation and the temptation revealed for what it is, but now let's look at God's goodness as we close here this morning. There are three ways in these last three verses, verses 23 and 28, this, this last section in the bulletin, I've tried to space it out for us so we see the break there. We see three ways of God's goodness, a God who draws near, a God who fulfills our desires, and a God who strengthens us. So you can call these subpoints or whatever you want to call them, but I'm going to look at these three themes in these last verses. A God who is near to us, a God who actually satisfies our desires, and a God who supplies strengths, all things that he needs, that he's longing for, that we're all longing for. Drawing near is huge in this psalm. In 23, he says, I'm continually with you. And then in the last verse, he says, it's good to, for me to be near God, verse 28. And nearness is not our first thought when we think of the divine of a God. We don't think near, right? Long ago, the, the Romans and the Greeks and even pagans, they put their gods up on Mount Olympus. They put their gods far away from them. Kind of weird stories there, but the point is there's separation. And even Islam, as I understand it, Allah is so... Um, and. Uh, this is that we, this is, uh, I'll say this, Yahweh is described similarly as the Quran describes Allah in this sense. He's above the heavens. He's reigning over all. We confess all that as well. But, 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 in Islam, Allah is so lofty and above and far beyond. It's not near. And is that the Christian God? Yes, yes, in a way, yes. But he is a God who is very near, for he is a God who stooped in the person of Christ to be with us. So we worship the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but we don't, we don't negate the supremacy, the power, the eternal nature, the all-knowing, the sovereignty. He is above and beyond, and yet, and yet, he stooped. He came to us. He came near and in the very first chapter of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, Jesus is described in two ways. The first two ways he's described. He says, call him Jesus because he'll save people from their sins. Call him Jesus. He'll save people from their sins. And he will be Emmanuel, God with us. Right away in the New Testament, God is with us. 
and he's saving us. This is how Jesus is described immediately. Very contrary to the Greeks, to the Romans, and to other religions of the world, that a God would stoop, humble himself to save, that a God would be with us in order to save us. Verse 23, you hold my right hand is the second part, and you guide me with your counsel. That is someone who is near and holding you up. Not a pastor's counsel, not a parent's advice, not like a podcaster's take, but God himself holding you up. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, in the entire Bible, is in Deuteronomy, back in the Old Testament, for the first chapter. We know Old Testament, sometimes we're like, I feel like God was maybe a little different than he was in the New But hear this verse in Deuteronomy, God speaking to his people. You have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carried his son all the way until you came to this place. This place being their journey through the wilderness to the promised land. The Lord, you've seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carried his son And we sometimes have a vision of God that if he's near, it's actually a bad thing. If he's close, he's mad. He's like a cop behind me. He's going to pull me over. I just can't wait till he goes around and follows someone else. Is my turn signal broken? I can't remember. Oh, no. That's what it's like to have God close. But that's not how the Bible presents a close God. Yes, he is holy. Yes, he will judge wrong. But his heart is to be near his people. And he's carrying them like a father carries a parched, weary child on a hike. He's got them close. You are received. So God is good for God is near. The goodness of God. He's near and he also fulfills our desires. This is the second point in this theme here. God fulfills our deepest desires. Verse 25 is huge. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire from you. Massive statement. And we, we felt that even a little bit this morning with the call to worship, right? God, I'm like, a, I'm like a deer panting for water. You are the one that truly satisfies. Go to God with an ounce of that desire and he will fill you. Um... Eugene Peterson, who is a translator of The Message, if you've ever heard of him, one of my favorite authors for some of his other books, he makes a point that, uh, that children, children when they're being weaned, when they're transitioning from mama as the food source to what's at the dinner table as the food source, that is a painful process for kids. It's strange to cry out to mom and get nothing back. What's happening? My world's changing. But that is an essential component to a child's development. And and when that process is complete, when the weaning is complete, Eugene Peterson gives me insight on this, and moms could give me insight on this too, the relationship between the mother and the child have changed because now when the child cries, what are they crying for? What mama can give to them? They're crying for who mama can be to them. Mom's presence, mom's arms holding them, not what mama can give, but who she can be. And this is exactly what the psalmist comes to see. 
It's a complete flip of what we talked about. I'm keeping my hands in innocence. I'm washing my heart, God. Will you do something good for me? But no, no, no. He comes around to see, wait a second, God is filling my greatest desires. It's who God is to me, not what he has done for me. So he moves away from the bargaining with God and into a place of satisfaction and enjoyment of God. And uh, we, we tend to get busy in our lives and not invest in this. But I am telling you, there's nothing in here that ma- should make you think as you read it that God would not supernaturally satisfy you if you come to him with those desires, the desires that you have, be it a, a temptation or a longing or a want. God wants to meet us there, and so often we skirt around it, act like it's not even going to happen. And have, but God in his very being can supernaturally fill us, and that's what happens here. He has all these doubts. He has this temptation, and God fills him. Last point, God is good, God draws near, God satisfies us, and God supplies us with strength. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We already know this, Asaph. You told us how your heart was failing. You told us how your flesh was failing. Let me say it again. I will fail, I am weak, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion. He's admitting what we already know about him and what we already know about ourselves. One of the most encouraging passages that we can draw from this in the New Testament is in John 10. John chapter 10, where Jesus says these words about his people. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus says, no one will snatch my people out of my hand. We are safely in the hands of Jesus. He's supplying our strength and keeping us going. But how did this happen? This only happened because Jesus himself was torn from his Father's hands. On the cross where Christ laid down his life for us and gave himself. While I love what it says in the psalm. We were brutish and ignorant. We were as beasts before God. God said, I love them. I'm laying my life down for them. And these verses of what happens to the wicked so reminds me of what happened to Christ. He was set in a slippery place to fall, to be destroyed. And he was destroyed as he hung on the cross and cried out to God and he was swept away in the judgment of God. And he literally experienced being exiled, being utterly ignored, in the words of Lewis, utterly ignored by the Father. Why? Why was he despised? Why did he do all this for brutish and ignorant people? Because he wanted to bring his people back to him. And when he was raised from the dead, he secured that, triumphing over sin and death. And now he knows the cost. He knows the cost of what it is to hold you in his hand. He's gone through it for you already, and you're safely there by the work of Christ. When we face these temptations, we need to remember to draw near to God, the one who is good, the one from an eternal perspective, from a long view perspective. Maybe in the moment it doesn't seem this way, but God has brought us into eternity. He's holding us now. He's near. He's supplying our strength. And if you'll let him, he'll fill all your desires.
All of them can be satisfied in him. Truly, God is good. Our greatest good, our only good, God is good. Would you pray with me?